Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jim Banting, Assistant Vice Principal, Partnerships and Innovation at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Jim has more than 15 years of business development experience with a particular focus in the life science sector. Prior to becoming the Assistant Vice Principal at Queen's University, Jim was the President and CEO of Partech Innovations. Prior to his role at Partech, Jim was the Head of Business Development at Sigma Tau Pharmaceuticals, Senior Director of Business Development at the Human Genome Sciences, and the Director of Business Development at Caprion Pharmaceuticals, Celogy Pharmaceuticals, and Vaxis Therapeutics. Jim received his Bachelor of Science in Life Science and PhD in Pharmacology from Queen's University. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Jim. Lisa, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, thanks so much again, Jim, for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. And Jim, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Kingston at a Queen's University? Absolutely. My story is a bit of a interesting full circle one. I graduated from Queen's with a degree in pharmacology. And as I was graduating, some intellectual property that came out of my thesis ended up being complementary to some intellectual property out of a, a clinical researcher that was also working with my supervisor. And the technology transfer office at the time decided that that might be worth bundling into a company. And, you know, being at the right place at the right time, thinking, wow, if I could earn a living uh, starting a spinoff company that at least impartially was related to my thesis, what a better way to start your career. So I had the chance to be a co-founder of a university spinoff company at Queen's University that was successful in raising a pre-seed round of financing, I guess, a small Series A, if it was categorized in today's terms. That company ran some programs in the area of peripheral vascular disease and then was ultimately sold to a specialty pharma company based in South San Francisco. I stayed on with them for another three or four years uh, where it gave me the opportunity to uh, learn a lot more about business development. They gave me the opportunity to outlicense their late stage programs in Europe and the Far East. So that part of my career ended up seeing many round the world trips to uh, outlicense those programs. Um, from that company, I moved on to Montreal for a period of time. I worked at a proteomics platform company. It was looking at proteomics to identify biomarkers in the blood that might help inform uh, drug response or responder populations. And then from there, I went down to the United States to work at a company called Human Genome Sciences. Uh, Human Genome Sciences was one of the two groups that were first sequencing the human genome. So while it was a smaller company relative to Pfizer's and the other bigger companies in, in, the, in the pharma biotech sector, it was a very interesting time for a Canadian to work there because they had a broad intellectual property portfolio. Uh, they were building manufacturings in the biologic space. 
And the business development group was just a stellar opportunity because the BD group was relatively small and they did all of the business development functions from A to Z. You know, you can imagine sometimes in bigger companies, the business development function is uh, segmented a little bit more. So uh, just a wonderful time to do everything from, you know, deal initiation through to diligence, to negotiation, through alliance management. And during my time there, I had the chance to help them start a contract manufacturing business. So, you know, for a Canadian, just the kind of fully integrated biotech experience that you couldn't really get other places. So that was a wonderful company to work for. And then I spent about a year at a rare disease company. And that's a, a fascinating space to learn about also in the capacity of business development. And then in 2014, a leadership opportunity arose back at Queens to head up the technology transfer office. So uh, having relatively young children, I was interested in moving back for a leadership position, a chance to move back, again, going back to my full, full circle story, to go back and, and help support research and innovation in Canada. So, you know, it's one of the one of the best jobs in the world, and I was pleased to come back. Uh, since that time, the technology transfer office has actually been rolled back into the university. You know, sometimes in Canada, technology transfer offices are established as separate not-for-profits, and that's the way it was structured. But that since, in, since 2017, rolled back into the university to form the group I work for now, which is uh, Queen's Partnerships and in Innovation, where I serve uh, as um, assistant vice principal for partnerships and innovation. So uh, very full circle story. But as I said uh, in my remarks, just absolutely the best job in the world to be supporting research, innovation and entrepreneurship. Every day there's something new coming along and working with brilliant scientists and people that uh, really want to see the broader benefit from university research come out for the public good. Wow, Jim, that was quite a journey. And I think that's a great segue to my next question. And I wanted to ask you, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with Queen's Partnership and Innovation, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Our office is part of Queen's University, which is a, a small to medium, medium-sized university in the Canadian landscape, uh, actually established in 1841, so fairly rich history in the Canadian landscape. We're located on the beautiful shores of Lake Ontario, where the lake meets the St. Lawrence River. We're about equal distance from Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa. And from a U.S. perspective, if you drove two hours north of Syracuse, you'd run into uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. There's about 28,000 students here, more than 850 faculty members, and more than 430 clinical medicine uh, researchers. And there's about $200 million in annual research that happens uh, each year at, at Queen's University. Uh, so our office supports the mission of the VP research portfolio to be an essential catalyst for advancing research, partnerships, and knowledge mobilization with the hopes to strengthen Queen's local, national, and global impact. Our office has, I would say, four functions. And it's sort of interesting when people, as an aside, when people talk about tech transfer, so many offices are so much more than tech transfer these days, right? There's not simply take invention disclosures, file a patent and license and our office is no different. We have a group that handles uh, research legal services. Last year, they handled more than 1,500 research and clinical related agreements that get negotiated each year, for example. You have technology transfer folks, partnership folks, and then a number of folks that support startup and innovation, you know, accelerators, boot camps, and whatnot. And that's the, the four components of Queen's Partnerships and Innovation at Queen's University. Now, Jim, I wanted to ask you, I saw when doing my research for this podcast that you offered a workshop series last fall that was called Market Focus Research Workshop. Can you tell us more about this workshop and the purpose behind it? Yes. One of our team members actually came to us and said, as we're developing concepts for workshops to deliver to 
graduate students, postdocs, early career researchers, and even mature, you know, long tenured faculty members. The thought was, A, timing. If we could deliver workshops earlier in a person's research career, so in the case of a graduate student, during the first little while of their, their graduate studies or, or shortly after a postdoc joins, getting a framework and knowledge of the commercialization parameters may help them inform their research program so that if they can change their plan a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, they may come out the other end with an invention disclosure that's you know, closer to the mark. In many ways, when tech transfer offices receive invention disclosures, it's the research is already completed. And if there's you know some something that could have been done a little bit differently, uh, you know, we don't expect researchers to do complete right turns on their research. But if there's things that can be done without too much change of scope, those things would be helpful. So that was the the philosophy behind putting this workshop together. And it largely covers four main areas. The the participants learn about strategies for connecting and communicating with industry. The, the first, well, you know, version we ran was in healthcare, but we could we can morph it to engineering and, and other disciplines so that you can make a critical assessment of your innovation and see where it fits in the marketplace. You know, the adage I use a number of times is you really want to be a painkiller, not a vitamin in whatever your technology is. And if researchers and students and whatnot sort of understand that, then that's, I think you've got a, a bit of an advantage. And then, of course, learning the framework of intellectual property, the role it plays in commercialization, you know, rules of disclosure, how patents work, freedom to operate. You know, in many in many sectors, it's a very dense competitive uh, landscape from an intellectual property perspective. So understanding the framework for intellectual property and how it all works, I think, will inform those folks, if, again, through the lens of earlier in a research program. Uh, this one was particularly related to health. So there was information related to regulatory and clinical trials, et cetera. In, in many different sectors, obviously, there's regulations that will dictate how a product could be developed and approved. And having an understanding of those things, if you can start planning your studies to start addressing those things as early as possible, you'll you know, increase your level of technology readiness and be sort of ready to go. And then the last component of the four is just understanding the commercialization cycle, taking it from an invention disclosure to filing a patent to how you could actually spin off and form a startup and what's needed and how you could go about trying to fund the company. So that's uh, that's the focus of, of that program. And we've run it a number of times. And I think it's it's met with a positive reception. So, Jim, I wanted to turn back and ask you a little bit about your office, specifically about your team. Could you share with us um, the makeup of your team, maybe how many individuals you have? Yes. Again, I'm extremely fortunate to have you know one of the best jobs in the world. And there's a team of 25 professionals that work at Queen's Partnerships and Innovation. We have folks with expertise in legal, partnership, technology transfer, innovation, financing, accounting, communications, data, and analytics and and all the reporting that one has to do as part of these collective activities so it's it, you know very pleased to have a group of 25 dedicated professionals that are all bought in and and work hard each day to deliver the mission of trying to support research innovation and entrepreneurship at Queen's University now given that team I'm kind of curious if you could share with us some of the statistics from your office maybe from fiscal year 2021 in terms of new licenses, startup companies formed, invention disclosures, things like that. Sure. So as as a medium-sized university, we see between 40 and 50 as, you know, a good number of invention disclosures each year. 
you know, over the, the office has been well, technology transfer has been happening at Queens for more than 30 years. And so, you know, those numbers do go up and down over time. But that's, you know, a good target for us. Um, we typically would file anywhere between 10 to 20 new patent applications by, I mean, you know, like the first time a patent's been filed, it's involved drafting. Uh, last year, we had uh, 19 U.S. patents issued, which was a nice number for us. And then in any given year, you know, license and option agreements can be in their range of four to six. And uh, we have more than 75 active licenses that are being sort of managed on an ongoing basis. Startups that are strictly formed out of the university is sort of less than five. And our things like our royalty income, and you know, I'd, I'd love for offices like ours, tech transfer and otherwise to, you know, well, well, we need to report royalty income. I think there's many other benefits of our offices, but historically our office has had licensing revenue as high as five to $7 million. Uh, but as you know, that ebbs and flows as patent life comes and goes. Uh, we're currently just, just below a million dollars at the moment as uh, licensing revenue for the university. Now, I want to go back to startups and ask you, could you tell us a little bit about how your office supports the startups that come out of the university? Sure. There's two categories that we end up supporting companies. One is the more traditional technology transfer route where a professor files an invention disclosure. We do our analysis. We decide to work with the technology and put a patent in place, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, under those scenarios, we can support licensing the technology back to a startup and uh, then provide some support for assembling the team and having it kind of go off as its uh, own unit. And each of those startups are eligible to participate in incubators, accelerators, you know, have a hot desk, uh, those types of things. The second set of services we offer where we take a small portion of our team of professionals time and support community startups. So you don't necessarily always have to be coming out of the university. We focus solely on tech businesses. So we don't have main street businesses where we can support, but um, you know, the federal government's put processes and, and funding in place to support uh, the, the emerging community that you know, may, or, may or may not come directly from the university, but see the expertise at the university as benefiting these startups. The town we live in called Kingston, Ontario is uh, a smallish town. I think it's about 135,000 people as the population. And when you look at the economic drivers, it's largely a public sector town with three post-secondary institutions and some, some government and some military, but no, no large pockets of industry. And so the in many ways, the heartbeat of the economy is small to medium-sized businesses that might be 15, 20, 25 people. And so we, we consider building businesses like that an important win for the economy, uh, just as much as everybody wants to build unicorns and billion-dollar companies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you know, the, the, the base hits versus the Grand Slam home run, to use the sports analogy. Uh, I, I think, you know, you get enough of the smaller ones that you can make up for a, a a much more diverse economic base than you know, one large company. Uh, so, so those are the ways we generally support companies. Now, I'm curious with those startups, what kind of funding opportunities are available? I mean, I'm based in Chicago and, and there's always been a challenge here in what we call flyover country with um, venture capital funding and things like that. So I'm kind of curious what it's like for you up in Kin Kingston. That's, that's a perennial challenge for any startup, I think. Um, you know, Canada is approximately the tenth of the size of the U.S., and the venture capitalist venture capital pool available is probably smaller than that. Some would argue. So, to to get companies going, 
There's certainly a lot of reliance on angel investors to friends and family, as would be traditional. There's various programs at the provincial and federal level that could provide matching funds if you can get some uh, revenue or support. Uh, There's a wonderful program that if you're a bit more mature, so this wouldn't be for startups that are right out of the gate, but this would be one that have some improvement in technology readiness. The uh, National Research Council has a program called the Industrial Research Assistance Program. Uh, It's been around for, I I believe, probably more than 70 years. This is a group of industry technology advisors that have money that can go into improving uh, the technology readiness for various technologies of small to medium-sized businesses. So, that's a program we point to uh, for startups to take a look at because it's it's typically non-dilutive funding and it comes, you know, the, the industry technology advisors that uh, the IRAP program has across the country are uh, stellar individuals. They're connected. So in addition to the funding, they can often add some important networking and perspective for a company. So those are the types of things that uh, that companies would pursue in Canada. So, Jim, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about Queen's and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. This has become a priority for our uh, principal, uh, Patrick Dean. A year two, a year ago, or probably two years ago now, um, he decided that the university should start uh, participating in a program run by a group called the Times Higher Education Impact Rankings. And this is a group that allows universities to look at their various activities through the lens of the 17 sustainable development goals. And so uh, Queen's has recently been proud to announce that they achieved another uh, top 10 ranking in this uh, study for the second year in a row. And uh, it's become a real rallying point, I would say, for the university and the research community because the 17 goals can be viewed as fairly diverse range of things. I think what we're seeing is researchers looking at which of the 17 goals they might fit in and seeing how their research can impact it. So as a framework, uh, I think and everybody at the Queen's community is keen to see how uh, how these rankings continue to factor into research as we go over time. And I don't think anybody could argue the importance of addressing these 17 goals from the United Nations. So I think it's a uh, Certainly a nice point of pride and an area that I think will frame a lot of uh, research and innovation activity that uh, that happens on a go forward basis. Yeah, congratulations. That's definitely something to be very proud of. That's really fantastic. So, Jim, switching gears, I wanted to ask you about external partners, whether they're corporate partners and or government partners in the role they play in tech transfer there at Queens. Could you give us some examples of some relationships with some corporate partners? Sure. I guess I'd catch my answer initially just in terms of sources of partners that would support research that will lead to new inventions that could be commercialized. So maybe more on the partnership perspective. But, um, you know, in Canada, there's a number of industries that have organized, and these are groups of industries with common interest, into research consortium, whether it would be aerospace or other sectors. And those industry groups sort of self-organized have come up with the, the collective challenges, and then they make funding available to address those challenges. So I'd say research consortia is an important source of uh, support for, or a source of support for the university outside of the uh, Canadian Tri-Council government support supported grants. Uh, industry, certainly in the health sciences, is a prominent uh, uh, feature in, in conducting clinical research. Hosted here in Kingston is a group called the Canadian Cancer Clinical Trials Group with a very long history of organizing uh, clinical trials and 
many industry partners come to uh, ask interesting questions about their oncology programs with that group. And then in Canada, there's another federal initiative. It's kind of an extension of the research consortia concept, but the federal government instituted some funding for something called the superclusters, which meant to encourage industry leaders, small to medium-sized companies, and universities and colleges to come together and collaborate on large-scale projects to speed up the growth in key sectors. And the key sectors identified are digital technologies, uh, things like plant proteins, advanced manufacturing, enhancing the use of artificial intelligence in supply chains and oceans. So the university here in Kingston at Queen's has participated in a number of these as sources of funding to to move forward. And so that's, that's typically how we move forward. As I mentioned under the other question of startups, to get startups funded, we are back to looking at angels, family and friends, venture capitalists, those types of uh, traditional routes as as partners that can help. Like any startup really goes through a journey and they seem to need different expertise along the way. So we have partners that I would call service or, or mentorship delivery type partners that we also work with that, um, that, that have the scale and expertise that can be sort of handoffs and see these companies continue to grow in addition to sources of money. Now, I wanted to ask you about some of your office's biggest success stories. Could you describe for us some of these successful technology startups or anything else you'd like to share? Sure. Historically, the biggest success for Queens was actually a topical therapy for a precancerous condition called actinic keratosis. It's difficult to say. Uh, It's a photodynamic therapy that's been in the market for a a long time. So that's one of the, the commercial success. But you know, just in terms of not necessarily always looking at royalties and numbers as the success, I wanted to point out kind of an interesting story. Uh, Queens was fortunate to have a professor, Dr. Art McDonald, uh, as a co-recipient of a Nobel Prize in physics uh, several years ago for some work in astroparticle physics and related to neutrinos. And there's obviously, you know, physics experiments involve large numbers of people, huge scale experiments, many facilities, many countries around the world. And when the pandemic hit, this group pivoted to collaborate on developing a ventilator. The project was called the Mechanical Ventilator Milano. So you can imagine there was some participants from Italy involved. But it was uh, striking to watch the group pivot from all the skill sets they use with these large, multidisciplinary, huge collaborations to uh, getting a, a ventilator developed and across the goal line and ready for use. You know, fortunately, it turned out that didn't end up being in demand. But if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, that was a real fear. It was, uh, yeah. At least in our region at, at the beginning. So that that to me is is a fun example of how a group of researchers can use their skill sets to pivot and work come together to, to get these things uh, sorted out. Uh, the other one's kind of a fun one as, as a in, an, an origin story, I guess I would say, is there's actually a professor dating back to 1910 that ha- from Queens that actually has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Really? His name's Her- Herbert Kalmus. Yeah, so that between, I might get the dates not exactly right, but around 1910 to 1914, he was at Queens uh, teaching, I think, in the Department of Mining and then became interested in physics and electrochemical metallurgy, I believe it was. But anyways... He started tinkering with film and wanted to think about how film technology could be improved. And he eventually uh, came up with the origins of the idea. So, you know, the other part of the story is Dr. Kalmus left the university, went down to the U.S. 
and uh, form the Technicolor Motion Picture Company. So, oh wow, the, the origins of Technicolor in some in some small way uh, started uh, here at Queen's University many many years ago in 1910. So, when you measure how can a university have an impact, it's not in necessarily in dollars and cents, but you know who knows if in 1910 to 1914, that this was the inspiration for what would become uh, later one of these things. And I think that that's a testament to the fact that the people that spend time here and then move other places uh, is still a, a potential measure of an impact. Definitely. That's a great story. Yeah. So th- those are just a, a few examples. The last one I'd like to mention is an emerging success story. Um, it's a relatively new program we thought about. We've named it the Foundry Program. And we're our office works in collaboration with another group called the Dun & Deshpande Queen's Innovation Center. Uh, they run a, a wonderful summer program that uh, teaches typically undergrads uh, how to start a startup. So they spend the summer learning the ins and outs of the lean startup manufacturing or lean startup process, I should say. And, uh, you know, they come up with their ideas to develop a business. And so we thought, well, why not see if there's some substrate from the technology transfer portfolio that they might be interested in sort of grabbing a hold of and and commercializing. So we tried this out once before we called it the Foundry Program, and it worked out really well with a, a mining technology. There's a company out there now called Rockmass that's developing a hardware software device for characterizing the walls or surface of a mine uh, using a data acquisition tool that would potentially replace using a protractor and much more manual methods. So uh, that was the birth of the Foundry Program, but the part we thought was interesting was we decided that rather than potentially getting caught up in loops related to negotiation, we would set up the terms for technologies going into this program and then into the startups ahead of time. So we said, let's pick technologies that are maybe a combination of hardware and software that you know, somebody coming out of undergrad could probably tackle and develop a product in one to two years. And have a, have have royalty terms and licensing terms that are set. And so the way technologies move into the program is that we talk to the researchers, professors, the inventors, and say, hey, we've got this foundry program. Would you be interested in offering up the technology to the program? And by the way, here's the terms that we're going to license the technology out with. So that's where the negotiation happens. Yes, I want my technology to go in, or no, I don't. Once they say yes, then everybody knows what the license agreement will look like. The startups know, and it's 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 really worked well. So since the pilot of, of the company I've mentioned called Rockmass, we've done a couple of others, and there's another company called Spectroplasmonics that I'd want to mention. They're using a Raman spectroscopy technology to develop what's essentially, a, I would call it as a point-of-care diagnostic for detecting opioids. Obviously, severe crisis in the world today with that problem. So, you know, we, we wish them all the tailwinds in the world to to move forward on it. But uh, that's a program that I think is new. It's a collaboration amongst a couple of groups and potentially interesting way to uh, have technology move into startups. That's fantastic. And um, sounds like some really great things going on there at Queens. And, you know, Jim, with great success also comes challenges. So I'm curious what you would say are your office's two biggest challenges. Well, at least having listened to your podcast, you won't be surprised at some of the challenges. That <laughs> yeah, we have exactly. Or to, to many think, others, but. Yeah, I have a feeling I know what they might be. <laughs> so the 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 number one challenge is, and it's not necessarily funding for our office, but it's funds to get over the innovation gap. I'm I'm not a big fan of the other ways described the valley. The valley of death. Yeah, yeah. I prefer to call it the innovation gap. 
but some kind of funding to get you know a number of technologies over that innovation gap is i think something anybody in tech transfer would ask for and then more more not so much from the technology transfer perspective but from partnerships and innovation is is just the evolving landscape for doing research when you think of increasing requirements for privacy the you know european data regulations security cybersecurity all the things in the news you know, I think a, a research contract that might have been 15 pages 15 years ago has <laughs> really grown. So that, it, and it's really hard on researchers, and it's hard on the system. And then that doesn't help uh, industry have the perception that universities can be difficult to work with. So, I, I think that would probably be the second biggest challenge: just the evolving complexity, just from a legal and <laughs> contracting perspective, that's needed to to do research today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I wanted to switch gears again, Jim, and ask you about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because this is an important topic that's being discussed in tech transfer offices all around the world. I was wondering if you could tell us what program your office and the university has to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and entrepreneurs. Sure. So, Lisa, there's many initiatives at Queen's, and equity, diversity, inclusivity and indigeneity is incredibly important at the university, but I can give you some examples at our office. Uh, We were able to secure some funding uh, a number of years ago under a federal government program uh, that started related to women entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, know, when I mentioned that Kingston is about 130,000 people, that also means that the surrounding community, the local economic development office and, and colleges and other universities in town, we, we can all work together to have an impact. And so a group of community members led by an application from our office has some funding under a program, uh, we call it We Can for Women Can, to uh, under the Women's Entrepreneurship tra- Strategy from the federal government to support uh, women entrepreneurs. But in particular, there's a sort of a category of list I can I can mention here, but focus on women who have founded or led technology companies, programs for women who identify as Indigenous, women from racialized communities, newcomer women to Canada, women with disability, women from rural areas, women under 40, and females who identify as part of the LGBTQ2S community. And those programs are just tailored for that particular audience. So there's incubation programs, acceleration programs, workshop, networking events, uh, support for doing exports, uh, programs to support women in leadership, um, legal IP support, down onto group coaching, one-on-one coaching in the areas of sales, marketing, communication, social media, finances, investment and growth, and community building. And, and I have to say, just watching this community grow, it's been an amazing to see this community come together, uh, these group of entrepreneurs that inspire each other and come to all these events. And in some way, the pandemic uh, taught us something about how to run these programs. We found with uh, virtual and online offerings that participation was much more flexible for uh, these folks. And so we, we we did have one event just last week in person, which was absolutely wonderful. But uh, the participation and uh, the the stories coming out of this program are, are just really inspirational. Uh, we're trying to work with this group, for example, to to teach, teach them how they can get involved in procurement processes for the university. So if somebody has a small to medium-sized business that can get a good or service that the university would otherwise need and they get you know, competitive to get to compete with the process, you know, for, for procurement, we do need to be careful of 
uh, trade and and uh, procurement regulations. But those are the types of things. And then the other program I'd mentioned, we're running a pilot in the next little while on um, women faculty members that might have an interest in understanding inventions and spinning off their research. So there's a cohort of women that are running through a program that will uh, go through all the ins and outs of uh, how to commercialize uh, technology coming out of their research. So we're we're keen to see both of these programs continue to see more participation from from this this part of our community. So those sound like some really great programs uh, that you have going on there, Jim. And I wanted to switch gears now and ask you about what organizations that you're involved in and the value you think they might add. I think our list would be similar to others. So Autumn, for example, uh, they just had the Canadian meeting. We had one of our team members there participating in a webinar. Um, But there's actually a couple of, I would call them self-organized groups that uh, represent a unique way for different technology transfer offices to connect together. Now, the first one I'd like to mention, this was uh, founded by uh, a a long-tenured Canadian technology transfer person, uh, and the group's called the Canadian Technology Transfer Professionals. And it's it's you know self-assembled group. There's really no funding for it. It's just people hopping on a Zoom call, uh, taking turns hosting the meeting. But it's a wonderful resource to compare notes and get up to speed on issues of the day. Uh, there'll be guest speakers that come in and talk about it. When there's new budgets that come down from the federal or provincial governments, it's an opportunity to chat. So that's on a national scale. There's representation coast to coast. So. You know, I'm happy to give a shout out to the Canadian Technology Transfer Professionals Group because uh, that, that's one way for our, our colleagues to stay in contact. And then at the provincial level, I'd say there's a similar sort of self-organized, really no funding behind it. It's a group called ORCA, Ontario Research and Commercialization Alliance. And so that's at a provincial level uh, doing very similar functions to try and uh, and help keep everybody uh, up to date and understand what the latest trends, share challenges and you know, share best practices. Well, Jim, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would that be? Well, Lisa, probably not going to come as a surprise. So more innovation funding. So funding that innovation gap. Many technology transfer offices I've heard in Canada look wishfully at the SBIR program in the U.S. and hope that there could be an SBR, SBIR-like program in Canada. Um, I would be interested in seeing technology transfer known for the broader impact. So a lot of people equate tech transfer with just how much royalty revenue you got. And I think there's many other components to the story, whether it's uh, the developing of HQP, where, you know, in the first spinoff company, a person wasn't successful, but in their second or third company, they went on to build a big company or somebody who tried to start up and then went to work at a company and became very entrepreneurial. Uh, somebody who had a big impact on policy where, or somebody that had a big impact on social innovation. You know, the, the big mission for the university, for the research that happens at the university, is that hopefully a portion of it will be mobilized out into society for public benefit. And that, that can take many forms. So I guess that would be my three wishes. Well, I think those are three really great wishes. And best of luck to you and your team in getting those realized. Well, Jim, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Sure. They can send me an email at jim.banting, that's B-A-N-T-I-N-G, at queensu, 
all one word, .ca. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Jim. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.